Doug. This is Jacob. And this is David. And you're listening to episode 33 of Best Worst Podcast. Cheers. And this is brought to you by the uh, Balvenie Doublewood on Jacob's side. Yep. And uh, Garage Project uh, Chateau Arrow and Red Rocks Reserve on David and my side. They are very nice. So, mm. um, and it's our, uh, yeah, Best Worst Christmas. Yeah, hopefully it will be. Um, Summary of 2016, all that kind of goodness. Yeah, and do, do some best ofs, do some other random things, basically just an excuse to talk about films with a small bit of structure. Yeah. Uh, and I thought we might start off with, um, before we get into the year proper, with maybe some of people's favorite uh, holiday films. So, um, Jacob, do you want to start off with, what, what's a family Christmas film that you enjoy? <laughs> family Christmas film. Well, I don't, I don't really have a tradition of watching Christmassy films. Um, but a film that I sort of dubbed as my favourite Christmas film a couple of years ago was, or a couple of years ago? Yeah, was um, Tangerine by um, Sean Baker, uh, which is set at Christmas um, on the streets of LA, which is, you know, not too dissimilar, like, it seemed like a, like a reasonably warm place for Christmas over there, um, which is, you know, makes sense here because it's warm and you wander around and shorts and stuff, and it's a, about the couple of... Um, transgender working girls um, who are having some major drama um, around Christmas time and uh, there's a concert and there's a taxi driver and all sorts of fun um, not sure that I get the get the girls for that but you know I'd, uh, I'd happily watch that one again it was uh, it was great fun it was a fun film yeah. I'd totally forgotten it was a Christmas film yeah. that is a good pick for Christmas mm. yeah it deserves to take the place of Die Hard yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well since you mentioned Die Hard yes. I don't mean to be boring and we don't need to dwell on this at length but Die Hard would be my Christmas pick some, some years ago I believe I had a Christmas where I set my then reasonably young children down to watch Die Hard and also Love Actually, we don't need to talk about that. Um, and <laughs> that is child abuse, <laughs> I will just raise a hand now and say there are, there are very few bits of Love Actually that I don't end up really liking oh. when I watch it. I'm sorry. Everyone should take that into account. <laughs> be warned. Be warned. We're also using a new microphone, so hopefully everything comes out clearly. This. Uh, yep. Yep. So yes, he said love actually is terrible, and yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's very in case you were confused. Um, yeah. The only remark I will make about Die Hard while we're while we're touching yep. on it is that it's very interesting if you if you watch it in the was it an, was it an actual eighties film or is it early nineties? No, it's actual eighties. Yeah. yeah. If you then if you then watched it throughout the nineties and then stopped watching it throughout all of the two thousands and then went back to it and probably it was twenty eleven, yeah. man, eighties films were brutal. There there are just <laughs> there are there are beats that are presented as you know just standard action beats where I was just flinching, mm. um, which is something I'd forgotten about the films of the eighties. But still, yeah, they were very beats. unrepentant. We um, yeah. um, Sarah, my wife and I, um, two Christmases ago. We were in Denver, Colorado um, a few days before Christmas, and we were fortunate enough to see Die Hard with accompanying um, food and beer selections. So we had um, a um, some shrimp cocktail and some kind of goat's cheese that was called like you know foot cheese or something like that because of that bit where he's yeah uh, yeah and yeah, um, yeah. Um, and then a um, Salisbury steak TV dinner and a. Uh, a chocolate-covered Twinkie for dessert, so it's a very <laughs> all-American experience, and it does really um, hold up. But uh, yeah. as, as so, but actually, your pick is a more recent uh, action film, isn't it? Or 
Are you going to stick with Die Hard? No, no, Die Hard is... What, what did you think my pick I was? I thought your pick was The Nice Guys, because that's what you Oh, yes, I got Die Hard, and then we have a spreadsheet here. For, for those listening at home, we have a spreadsheet in which I wrote Die Hard, and then I crossed it out and replaced it with The Nice Guys, and then I forgot. Possibly the beer is a little too good. Um, yeah, The Nice Guys. Um, is The Nice Guys a Christmas film? I can't actually remember. I just assume that it is because all of Shane Black's films are Christmas films. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang was. Yeah, I, I had not it. seen Kiss Kiss Bang Bang when I saw nice The guys. Nice Guys. Astonishingly. Oh. I, everyone said, yeah, The Nice Guys is good. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is so much better. I went home, rented Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, sat down and watched it with my son and mother. And my son and I enjoyed the hell out of it. And my mother did not complain. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> well, that's good. Yeah. Again, family films. Yeah. And, and actually, Shane Black also did The Long Kiss Goodnight, which is another Christmas yeah. 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 film as well. So he's uh, Just in the spirit yeah. of Shane Black films being mm. Christmas films, I, I really did enjoy The Nice Guys a lot. Possibly mm. not as much as I would have if I'd watched his entire filmography beforehand rather mm. than subsequently. But The Nice Guys is, is just a film with a lot of heart. And I think for a lot of people, it, was, it registered as lesser Shane Black. For me, it registered as, wow, Shane Black. So mm. I just wanted to put my hand up and say that was a lot of fun. Cool. I had a lot of fun with it as well. Yeah, I, I enjoyed it. It was an enjoyable well. time at the cinema, and I think it's been a little overlooked as the... Um, I was surprised at the chemistry between those two. It was like, you know... Yeah, yeah they're, not, they're not an obvious pair. Yeah. It turns out they can both act. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Someone should give that Ryan Gosling some opportunities. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> he's, he's, he's waiting for his moment. Yeah. <laughs> um... One that I've broken out a couple Christmases is a, a deeper uh, dive into the vault, and it's a film um, called Blast of Silence, which um, despite... Uh, That's not an alternative title for Blast from the Past? Or... No, no. It's um, a Criterion Collection film, but it's actually just sort of slid under the radar, and it's more of a Christmas time film than a Christmas film. Like right. I feel like a Christmas film itself has to have uh, you know, kind of a resolution involving the emotions of Christmas. And... Um, Blast of Silence is a, a really dark, um, you know, cynical black and white noir from the late 1940s, I believe. It's just specifically remarkable for being entirely narrated in the second person. And uh, so it's, you wake up in the city and, you know, this yeah. kind of, and so it, it, it's very much putting you in the shoes of um, this no good trying to uh, he's not really trying to make things right, but every once in a while he does, and it just makes things worse. And the um, <laughs> the highlight or low light of that um, gap between intention and actuality happens at a Christmas time scene where he, um, I think it's an ex's house that he goes over to try to reconcile things with and make something pleasant for the season, and it just goes catastrophically awry. But it's it's. Um, the film then continues on from there, so it doesn't have a third act Christmas as its catharsis, but it does um, function very well, especially if people are having a lonelier season as a um, film to kind of tie them over. And also, I'm sort of aware that we probably won't get this online. <laughs> it is December 23rd right now in our yeah. defense, so uh, we'll see how quickly we turn things around. Are you telling me the two of you won't be spending all of tomorrow mastering this and getting it ready? <laughs> this, this may have substantially more ums than the uh, average episode, depending on how quickly we edit it. Um, but yeah, um, should we duck into... Um, we've got our top fives as well as a lot of other categories. So now, a lot of our top five will be familiar, because having a quick look, I believe... 14 of our, no, 13 of our 15 picks 
played at the New Zealand Film Festival. Yeah. The 14th played at New Zealand Autumn Events, and literally one premiered outside of uh, film festivals. So we've talked about quite a few of these, but um, that doesn't mean they shouldn't be recognized again because the fact that the film festival picks the best films of the year is just... Yeah. <laughs> It's just a fact. Part of the mission. Yeah. Um, shall we go around and do our number fives and work our way up the uh, list? Yeah, yeah. Something Let's do that. Okay, I'll start. Um, number five, and in fact, it might have been higher. It's the only film I've seen twice, and so I, I ducked it down a little bit on a second viewing. Okay. But Green Room is still um, easily one of my favorite films of the year, uh, and mm. we've talked about it before, but the the combination of something that's a brutal, lean action thriller, mm. and the quality of the performances from Patrick Stewart, from Anton Yelchin, from Macon Blair, and so many others, and then also the fact that the whole thing functions as a metaphor of coming of age and moving from a punk world and being in that scene to having that scene gradually disintegrate around you and being mm. divorced from it in a really in what in the first viewing is the final line of the film, which I won't spoil, but I think you both know from mm. having seen it, yes. kind of plays like a little snide joke in the second time mm. when you kind of, for me, when you have more of a sense of it, is a really brutal gut punch of what it means to have gone through these um, events. And uh, yeah, Jeremy Saunier, uh, who did uh, Murder Party, and which I still have yet to see it sitting on the shelf waiting, and, uh, okay. and Blue Ruin, which I really mm. loved, really mm. outdid himself here. And which I'm, I still have yet to see. Yeah, Blue Ruin? Yeah, well, both of those. Oh, yes, are. yeah, yeah. Blue, Blue Ruin um, is terrific as well, although a lesser film, but um, plays a, with a lot of the same things in terms of um, uh, the match between brutal violence and people who aren't necessarily very well equipped to, to inflict yeah. it or deal with it and this sort of roller coaster of tone um, and trying to reconcile belonging and with something that's now gone and yeah so there's definitely a lot of similarities but Green Room um, uh, Sonia apparently used to play in a lot of punk bands and so especially for anyone who somehow hasn't managed to catch up to it who ever had any relation to punk it's worth a must see but I think David you or it's about as far away from anyone who had a relationship to punk and you still found something to like in it? I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I am at the diametrical opposite point in terms of musical preferences and music background. I actually grew up finding punk very threatening and, and scary and slowly got my head around the idea that it was just an alternate form of expression and um, not actually... They, they weren't going to come and strap me down in my bedroom and release live rats. Right. <laughs> um, which I, an early Newsweek description of the punk scene had somehow managed to inculcate in my mind. <laughs> but we don't need to go there. That could be another... That's a film idea for anyone who wants to pick it up and this run with it. This sounds like the Fox News interpretation of Black Lives Matter. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, I had a great time watching Green Room. Uh, not as great as you, I think, possibly because of the lack of personal connection or possibly... I don't know. I, I considered last night whether it was a film I wanted to see again, and I found that it's still astonishingly present in my mind. I didn't... When I imagined sitting down and watching it, I couldn't, I couldn't quite see where the surprises would be. Right. Um, I'm sure I'm wrong about that, but I have this sense that, it's, that it exists perfectly in my mind. It's one and done. I'm good. Yeah. There's some minor plot elements that come to the surface on a second viewing, but mm. what comes to the surface, I think, more in the second viewing 
is the immediate attachment to the characters because the characters very much unfold and I don't mm. think it's a film where I don't think you know at the beginning who's oh, that's the person who's going to make it through or even understand which, where the characters you know what their tendencies are and there's there's a very early um, strange scene in the parking lot where one of the um, yeah, punk guys accosts yeah. one of the guys in the band yeah. and that's something that on a second viewing we may have mentioned this before so mm. we should, don't need to dwell on it too much but uh, yeah I, th- I, I do think it does grow in a second viewing, but you know, there's probably plenty of other things to watch. There's well. so many things to watch, but I do. I have a feeling that my 18 year old who is sitting behind us as we record this needs to see that film. So yes, 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 he, does. We, yes he does. So we may program it for some upcoming moment. Great, be good. Jacob, do you want to top? To yeah, yes. Your so my, my number five, which I can't remember if I've talked about or not, is uh, probably a little seen film for a lot of people yeah I imagine many people haven't caught it it was at the festival it's a little Iranian American um, kind of um, deadpan comedy uh, called Radio Dreams which is about the supposed um, only Farsi language radio station in the San Francisco Bay Area Uh, and the plot set up is that the radio station manager I think has um, organised for uh, the only I think it's the only rock or punk band from Afghanistan Kabul Dreams to come and play and he's organised for Metallica to come and play with them what? Um, (laughs) and so the entire film is waiting for Metallica to turn up whose agent kind of keeps calling and saying ah yeah things are going we're going to be there but and so you spend the entire film not knowing whether they're going to show up or not you spend the entire film absolutely assuming they will not show up yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) but yeah and some surprises happen and it's quite interesting but but it's um it's a real kind of cat and mouse um black comedy dry comedy drama between the station owner's daughter who kind of runs the marketing side of things and she's very much all about the station's got to make money we've got to be relevant um she's all about uh, but she's got no sense of artisticness the station manager um is an ex-poet um from uh from iran who's sort of had to move um homes and not didn't really want to necessarily and he's turned up in this place which feels like a bit of a wasteland to him and so he's constantly trying to program poetic readings and artistic sort of things and and they're at loggerheads the entire time to the point where he'll program something which is being read um, and then halfway through the reading when there's a pause the girl will just like get one of her minions to sort of chime in with a literal, literal chime and then do an ad for women wax hair waxing um, <laughs> Iranian women hair waxing you know to get rid of facial hair and stuff like that and, and yeah it's, it's just very amusing um, and so dry. sharp insightful um beautifully shot um, uh, you know like sitting on those steep um, San Francisco streets and just looking over and mist rolling in um, yeah and, and some great moments of music as well because Kabul Dreams is an actual band from Afghanistan right. that are actually on the film um, and they play um, yeah it's, and there's a lot of like deadpan close ups of people just milling around and looking awkwardly because they're, <laughs> they're, they're caught between these two powerful people in the, in the station and they don't quite know whose side they're supposed to take and whether they'll have a job if they take one person or another's. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very funny and just quite and quite insightful about finding your place in a very kind of foreign space and not just foreign in terms of overseas but foreign in terms of you don't kind of fit with the culture that's kind of 
kind of floating around you. Yeah. 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 Present. I've heard it described as kind of Iranian American Swedish. It yeah. Has a, it has a very Scandinavian. Right. Well, it was, I, I love good deadpans, and the, the, it's probably up in my top three that I can think of from the last kind of ten to fifteen years. So one, there was a Uruguayan film called Whiskey. Which I was, was thinking of Whiskey when yeah, you described it, yeah. which is um, fantastic and very dry. And then there was another um, Romanian film, Twelve Eight East of Bucharest. Another great film, yeah, which yeah, is about fantastic. Broadcasting, yeah. yeah. And um, and then Radio Dreams for me would go up with those three. Have you seen um, Ben Hummer's Kitchen Stories? Yeah, I have, and that was. That was not bad, but I wouldn't rate it quite as high. It's, it's not a set of pan for you as yeah. Uh, yeah. you might like. Yeah, I know that Dan Slevin put Radio Dreams very near the top of his film of the year, but I yeah. think a lot of other people, um, myself included, missed it. Yeah, well, I don't, th- I don't think there was like because uh, why would you see it? Um, I, 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 I look I out for deadpan because I see anything Iranian. Yeah. basically. I, I look at Iranian films, but I also I, I, I zero in on deadpan films, and and I thought. Oh, Here's the one for this year, and I was right. Yeah, it really yeah. was the one. Good pick. And your number five, David? Well, the last time I guessed it on this podcast was immediately in the wake of this year's New Zealand International Film Festival, and I swear I tried to manufacture a top five list that wouldn't just recapitulate what I said then. I failed. Um, <laughs> so my my fifth most impressive film that I saw this year was definitely Alexander Sukharov's Francophonia. Um, yeah, it sounds like I need to look at that. Um, I would love to know what you think. Did he it do anything um, between, what, between that and Russian Ark? Yeah, a bunch oh, of he's stuff. done lots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it just hasn't got distribution. And I have yeah. the feeling that Russian Ark is something of an outlier film for him, in fact. Oh, and this thematically, this sounds like the kind of the natural sequel to yeah. Russian Ark, but it's a very different and I think much stronger film. It's at the Louvre, correct? It's at the Louvre. So, oh, yeah, 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 so the Russian Ark is um Russian hermitage. thank you it's the hermitage and this is the louvre so it's sukarov does another great world art museum yeah. and, and kind of studies the culture of the city and the nation and does he use more than one shot and there's the difference he, <laughs> uses, he does it in more than one take and uh, yeah. i'm i'm morally certain this is exactly what i said last time we discussed this film but when you use editing you can mm. do so much more and mm. i mean and weird juxtapositions is exactly yeah. what he's doing which when you think about the louvre and when you also when you think about French history, it's yeah. exactly right. It's taking things that don't necessarily sit comfortably together, but might, for example, be together on the wall of a famous art museum oh, yeah. and talking about how they connect. So I watched the trailer to try and remind myself yeah. of what the film was. And the trailer tries to construct this narrative of how it's all about the Nazi occupation of Paris yeah. during World War II and what happened to the Louvre then and the... The, the tense cat and mouse game that plays out between the head of the Louvre and um, the, the Nazi officer charged with getting hold of as many famous French artworks and shipping them back to Hitler as possible. Uh, that's not the film. That's, it's a strong and fascinating element in the film, but the film ranges wide. Right. Um, my famous, my, my favourite bits were probably the moments where you follow Napoleon wandering through mm. the Louvre and he, he bumps into this strange woman who turns out to be a personification of, of France. And right. they, they start having this very surreal argument um, in which they're just essentially chanting slogans back and forth at each other while looking at great art. Uh, I don't know that I'm persuading you of the film's merits because this just sounds random. Have but you it's... seen Lost and Beautiful by any chance? Remind me. Uh, it's an Italian film and it has an animal as one of its lead characters. 
a... Yes, I have. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Because there's something... Uh, water buffalo, I believe. Cause it's, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. There's something... That was the one the where e- one of the subjects died halfway yes, through the yes, film and it converted yes. from being documentary to something much stranger. Oh. Yes. Which actually... Yes, but also, that... also the beginning is much stranger because you have the masked characters that are, I think, like comedia dell'arte types yeah. that are all in a room together and giggling and then they have, have to speak English and go off and find the person. But it does, it does have that balance between the allegorical and yeah. the more prosaic that's yeah. um, a, a bit dizzying but if you're on its wavelength can be really rewarding and if not can maybe be a little didactic this is similar to that in that it could be a straight documentary and I would like it a lot less if it were it's a documentary turned into kind of a found art object and as you can imagine the art that you find when you're wandering through the Louvre is of a very high caliber and he, kind of, he rises to its yes. level so uh, I don't know that I've described it very well. I don't know that I could describe it very well, uh, but I love this film, and it's one that I would enjoy watching again and again and again, I think, or at least at least again, and then we'll see about yes. again. Yeah. again. <laughs> yes, so any distributors listening, whoever picked it up, would you know if it was a Madman film? I have not the first idea. Okay, well, if it is a Madman film, put it out, you guys. Uh, <laughs> we want to see it again. Um, Going to our number four, I mean, with Radio Dreams and Francophonia, they're both films that aren't coming back, but um, arguably we could have waited on this one because uh, in 2017, if you miss Tony Erdman at the film festival, it will be returning. And it is um, both Jacob and Mai's pick. Jacob, do you want to start and say why it earned such a high ranking for you? Tony Erdman. So, uh, for people who... So, it's a German... Comedy by a female director, Marinardi. Yeah. Um, and it is, I mean, aside from the fact that it's just really bloody funny, um, surprisingly so. And and it's it's a reasonable length film, but it just carries that length so lightly. It's it's almost it's, three hours is yeah. what we mean by reasonable. And, and it's um, it <laughs> we'll play, get to unreasonable. It plays on it plays on it plays on many levels. Like it's a very rich film in terms of thematically. Uh, you've got the very the obvious sort of bones of it are father-daughter um, relationship film where you've got a father who's a bit of a prankster um, and then you've and uh, and a daughter who is living abroad who is very his kind of antithesis she's serious minded yeah. she's in business and is struggling to make it as a woman in business uh, she works for a company that is um, involved in global concerns and outsourcing labor um, consulting and and, uh, and a pace in Romania which um, you see poverty around the margins and then yeah and so this relationship where the father sees that the daughter perhaps isn't looking the happiest even though they don't get on that well he decides he wants to sort of intervene in their life and so he turns up where she's living and starts sort of messing around and this kind of cat and mouse game of uh, trying to prank and trying to ignore starts happening and it there's some very dry, deadpan moments of comedy in it because the characters, like the daughter, Ennis, is played so straight. And um, Sandra Huller is amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the father is he's he's more of a kind of a, a joker, and there's there's like physical comedy, but there's also there's dry huge comedy, sadness there's irony, as well. yeah. yeah, and yeah, and then but you get the the sadness comes from many places as well. It's the um, the family relationship which is quite fractured and then them trying to put that back together and it's kind of working kind of not working it's quite realistic in the way that it approaches that mm-hmm. that families aren't always close they aren't always tight and there's no great sort of resolution where they 
We're all happy now and we're going to live lovely lives together. It's not like that at all. They just come to a, an understanding of maybe actually we're better to be in each other's lives a little more. Um, and how that's going to work, it's not going to be nice or comfortable necessarily, but we're going to make it an effort. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of sadness, like I said, in the margins. There's the socioeconomic and political element happening in the, that's very rarely addressed directly, but it is always there and I, there's a particular scene that stood out to me as a, like a, a picture of this where Sandra Huller uh, the daughter's character Ennis is um, she's stressed out from work stuff she goes out into a balcony to have a cigarette and she's just sitting there smoking and the camera's looking past her off the balcony and over the back you can kind of see like a slum like neighbourhood and it's around all this new construction yeah, around isn't all this it new construction, and it's, yeah. it's just this great visual yeah. of the class divide and the haves and yeah. have-nots and yeah. globalization and that, and, all in one and that she's in, this, in the middle of this position of bringing probably more poverty to some of this area and here you're seeing it um, yeah mm. and, and, and they, they don't they don't sort of mention it. and then there's some other moments where like where the father's making jokes but then those jokes have consequences that he didn't sort of really expect and that's mm. quite a bit of a kind of shock to him which kind of puts him out of his humour for a little while yeah, when he realizes certain things happen, you know, someone yeah. loses their job because he's being a dick, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's the hardest I've laughed in a cinema all year, and it has two of the best scenes yeah. that I've seen that are just incredibly distended. I keep using that word actually, just yeah. extended. Distended. It's not distended is when you're bloated. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I've been using it incorrectly to yeah. just mean the, this, um, the tension of um, protracting something well beyond. It's they, comfort level. They do heavy elements of discomfort. Yeah. <laughs> yes, they do. Yeah. Yes, and, and there's a, a, a late-breaking scene in particular. Um, and Ade is very good at not over-tipping her hand at her character's psychology yeah. for the decisions that they make. Yeah. So when the things do go inarguably catastrophically off the rails, yeah. um, you're in this really constant position of being unsure as to exactly how where this person's pushing it and it is that it's almost that sense of danger of being mm. in the room with somebody who's really drunk or just that person you know that's really unreliable and and you know and they're walking over to the knife block and you're like, <laughs> stay away from that please stay away from that um but yeah it's it's again it's all, an almost three hour german film mm. and it's such a hard sell when you put it like that but it's it it physically it's one of the um fleetest yeah. um watching experiences yeah. i've had um i found it much easier going than Assassin's Creed, for instance, yeah. which I watched the other night. It's sitting apart rather yeah, yeah. It, it is, but Assassin's Creed is also a full hour shorter, um, and yet in felt time. <laughs> and, and I think Tony Erdman has it on every on every level that you can think of. I mean, aside from, like, the camera work is fine, it's fantastic, there's some great movement, but, I mean, it's not something that you'd call a... a beautiful film as such right. um, but other characterization is so rich and so and there's so much honesty and realism to it. that's why the characters end up doing things in other films where you might go oh this is ridiculous they're just pushing something over, well over the top to make a kind of ah, ha, ha, um, a very strange what I would feel like a strange joke but the characters are so they feel so lived in and so real and the relationships feel so real that you just go I'm not sure that anyone would do this but I believe that this person 
is doing this. Yeah. <laughs> and it's ridiculous. And I feel really awkward for them. And, and yeah, it's, it's beautifully done. And the acting is standout. Um, and the writing is just, yeah, it's, it's so good. I, I didn't, I didn't um, drop off in that film at all. I was just keyed in, amused, horrified, and, yeah. and, and kind of hate-loving the awkwardness. Yeah. And it's interesting what you say about the style, because I am often driven to more stylistic films, and mm. there's some of those coming out for me. But I think the absence of style, in a way, means that the audience doesn't exactly know yeah. how to take things, and it doesn't fall into, yeah. oh, this is a satire, oh, this is a commentary, this is, yeah. you know, it, it, is, a, true, it is a, I, I, I'm left to work out my own reaction yeah. that, that I find very exciting as a viewer, and yeah. I know that's not if, always the... Um, if you were going to yeah. describe what the camera is doing throughout, I guess, functional journalistic, mm. it's, yeah. it's not really... I mean, it's existing within a visual grammar, but it's a kind of default grammar yeah, rather yeah. than having any kind of style. I hadn't really thought of that, but it's mm. absolutely right. The other thing that I, th- I found really good about it is like I'm not big on physical comedy often. Um, I mean, there's a few moments where it works really well, but it worked really well in this film. Mm. Some real obvious physical comedy, but just it was actually really funny. I think we can all agree that it gets the year's best false teeth award. Yeah. <laughs> it actually That's had a funny moment. Like, uh, it's coming out 2017. Oh. <laughs> and it had an actually funny moment with a whoopee cushion, which is... Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I'd quite forgotten. Yeah. Um, so does your pick have any whoopee cushions? Um... Sadly, no. Um, but it is longer. <laughs> you think they could have yeah. fitted one in, but my pick is Japanese, and I think yeah. the cultural connotations would have been very different. Yeah. Um, I, I talked about this again last last time I was on this podcast. Uh, Happy Hour, uh, Ryosuke Hamaguchi's five-hour um, character-driven drama about four close friends in Japan. Um, Oh, I can't remember where they live now. It's not Tokyo. Um, it's it's one of the other major Japanese Osaka? cities. It's, I think so. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a very urban. Oh. Osaka is quite modern, so that would make. Although a lot of cities are. Yeah. Um, what to say that would persuade anyone to sit down for a five-hour anything? Uh, the length is absolutely crucial to what makes the film work. It is not length dependent. It's not. Um, if you hang out for the fifth hour you'll see the point of it all it's fascinating from the start the characters are well drawn and interesting from the start and then they get more so in a way that would not be possible in a shorter film you could compress this amount of information into a much shorter film but actually you couldn't because compression implies loss how did you Um, feel about because you had issues with Norte the end of history potentially in I don't remember what those were remind me oh I thought um I didn't love it as much as you did, yeah. but I don't recall thinking Jesus could have been Do you feel like the length was unnecessary in that one, or do you feel like Happy Hour no, uses no. length better than it, or is it a sort of comparable experience? No, my issues with that were um, a classic heaven versus hell problem, where you get this with, for example, Paradise Lost, any number of famous western works where you have God's point of view and the devil's point of view and the devil is so much more interesting so many people have kind of failed to solve that problem evil tends to be more fun or more compelling or harder to look away from 
good risks being bland. As I recall, that was my problem with Nutan. Okay, okay. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a disabling problem at all, okay. um, but it did mean that the film lagged for me in places, so to that extent I did experience it as having more duration than I might have liked. I suppose, although in retrospect, I think of that as a really good viewing experience overall. That's my major memory of it. This one's longer. Uh, and more consistently interesting throughout. In particular, it does this wonderful thing, I think only three, maybe four times in its length, where it starts a scene and you realise at the point where the scene doesn't end that you were expecting it to, so it makes you aware of your narrative expectations of what any kind of, oh, yeah. of what drama yes. will do, yeah, um, by giving itself more room. Just that, by letting the scene run and run and run and run and run yeah. and it just keeps getting more interesting and there is no reason why a drama cannot do that other than we need to we need to get six sessions of this into a day yeah, I, I remember you talking about the difference when we were talking about the difference between long form television mm. and film and, and how how much more you can well how, how differently you can um, utilise a single cinematic cinematic experience whereas even with long-form drama, there are beats that you have to have. You've got your hour yep. or whatever that you've got to fill, your 45 minutes or 50 minutes or an hour, and people expect a pattern to occur within that. And well, even, even if you do it slightly differently, you can, there's a certain amount of expectation that's going to be filled, and in a film like that, you don't have to do that. Yeah. And I think that was something that I was like, yeah, actually, I, I can... I was thinking about this yesterday when I was trying to put together my year in film and remember exactly what I'd watched. And in fact, one of the best viewing experiences I've had this year was watching Westworld, um, the HBO drama. That's interesting. But, yeah, um, that's ten, watch it. 10 episodes, yeah. in some ways very formulaic. Um, the best way to describe it is a really good game of chess. Um, they are setting up all these expectations and playing with them. 10 one-hour episodes, yeah. very patterned, very structured, in many ways not at all revolutionary, in many ways just another HBO prestige effort with lots of nudity and sex. Mm -hmm. um, but I really, really enjoyed it. But it was like, I would describe it as playing chess against a very skilled opponent who was constantly outguessing me. Happy Hour I would describe as playing Go. If you've ever played Go, it's an open board. At any point, your opponent can do anything. Okay. They can make a move anywhere on this very large grid. It's far more complicated, far harder to second guess, and the patterns that emerge are much, much harder to wrap your brain around. Right, um, and it was that kind of experience. Mm. Yeah, my I mean, my experience with Westworld was probably not as positive as yours, although I did like it. But I felt at the end that um, a great deal of it felt like a great deal of rigging relative to the actual <laughs> structure that was built, um, and that in particular one kind of expectation that's undercut in the ninth or tenth episode about how to interlocking story threads yeah, yeah. relate mm. is real and also just kind of manufacturing the cross cutting to establish it for that mm. number of episodes felt like this could have been done in a much terser amount of time but, but it, re it, requ it was mechanically wow. required to create this and this is another discussion about the virtues or vices of length though isn't it because precisely why I love that so much and I can I can see why you might experience that purely as a mechanical thing yeah. but why I loved it so much was that they sustained it so long and therefore I completely didn't see it coming and I don't get surprised that completely very often mm. um, having been you know consuming narrative for 50 years now you start to feel that you're good at it. So when someone does a fairly conventional story but still manages to completely 
undercut um, it. Yeah, that's that's nice. I, uh, I guess I felt more it was like through. I went through an elaborate scavenger hunt, and it's like, oh, here's your I'm in spy at the end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like that's what I went through all this for. Well, um, now I now I. But really, we'll see what happens with the second season because it is very open as to how it's going to. Ah, we'll see in go. 2018. Yeah. Um, which is a frustration of mine. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to derail you from yeah. happy hour too much. No, no, but it's that's left me very curious to know what you would make of happy hour. Whether you would find its its satisfactions as rich as I did, or whether you would just think, well, this is this is just another kind of tense kitchen sink kind of drama. Lots of realism, lots of conflict. Have you seen Yi Yi, Edward Yang's film? I haven't. It's a two thousand Chinese drama, and it's terrific. And it was. It promised much better things, and then he died. Uh, <laughs> Taiwanese director, but it's a three-hour uh, domestic film in which one could argue nothing happens, but of course everything happens because life happens, and it's um, I, I suspect not unlike Happy Hour, although neither of us have really the ability to. No, Happy Hour has a plot. Acknowledge it has it has several plots. Yeah, there no, there are storylines that fall through, but it, it so to say nothing happens is a bit facile on my account, but it is a very um, uh, domestic, small kind of okay, that story fits. that that that, that, yeah. that that fit goes on for three hours that, at a length that you know someone would find unnecessary for what is arguably not you know a Sergio Leone epic or a Russian war story, and yet um, it earns every minute of its runtime. And okay. it's, its only mistake is the one time that it tries to add an element of unnecessary drama. Um, and yeah. and so much of it is actually just observing characters in detail as they make decisions based on their morality in very quotidian settings. That does sound very similar. There's, there is one dramatic stroke in Happy Hour, I suppose you could say. Um, even that's arguable. But by and large, the stakes are how well can we know people, how well do we know our closest friends, um, how do we feel when we turn out to be wrong, or are we wrong? Yeah. Um, so, so I, I really ate it up with the spoon. Nice. So number three? Yeah, so speaking of domestic dramas, um, now a lot of people saw Patterson at the festival and I missed it, and I'm really glad I missed it, um, because it meant that it came to me at a point where, I, for A, I think I'd seen a few things that had been a bit disappointing, but B, I didn't see it in the rush of the festival. Mm. Um, and one of, one of the things that we haven't talked about so far that I think we'll get into a bit more is that I think um, pre-November 8 and post-November 8 viewings are possibly quite a different experience for people on lots of levels. Um, and, you know, there's other events as well with Aleppo and Brexit and things mm. that um, give people a sense of how they feel about the world. Um, and so I spent almost the entirety of Patterson on the verge of tears for no very good reason because there's nothing actually that's outwardly sad about it or tragic um, there's a moment at the very end which I think is its only misstep but um, apart from that it's just a full-throated and yet very humble um, portrait of a bus driver poet and his um Persian wife and their quiet domestic life together and um, just a gentle observation of a week in their lives and and I've seen I 
think every Jim Jarmusch except for the first one, um, Permanent Vacation. Mm -hmm. And he's always been somebody that I always enjoy to some degree. Um, some of his movies really hit for me and um, Ghost Dog, Dead Man, Down by Law, and Limits of Control, I'd say. And then some of the other ones didn't work for me, Only Lovers Left Alive, which a lot of people like, did not work for me at all. Yeah, not a and, um, uh, Night on Earth I found really patchy, mm. uh, Stranger Than Paradise I found really slow, but um, Broken Flowers didn't work for me. But even when it doesn't work, there's elements that I enjoy. And I, I went into Patterson, because of sort of the description of it, it sounded quite minor, and what um, really struck me about it, I suppose, is I feel like Jarmusch has been working for a long time now with these films like Ghost Dog and Dead Man and Only Lovers Left Alive uh, and Limits of Control with the shape of genre mm -hmm. to underpin his uh, interest. Even Broken Flowers, to some degree, um, still has that. And so this was a film that kind of just said, what if I take all of these interests that I have in, in poetry and expression and just take out that rigging and just let it be a space for those ideas to breathe. And I think that um, is why, it, and I know that um, there's at least one person in this room that doesn't agree with me, but that's why it really just worked for me because of its intimate, caring portrait. And I think that actually just having a very non-dramatic, casually multicultural milieu that um, the stakes are low and arguably at one point very high at the same time, but that it's just about um, the joy of creation in a very quotidian setting and that it, you don't have to be a glamorous thousand-year-old vampire that's venerating the greatest hits of world culture in order to have what you do be significant. Arguably, mm -hmm. you don't even have to have anyone read it or be able to read it in order for it to be meaningful for you. Mm. Um, I don't know if we want to preempt uh, your uh, number one or come back to it. Oh, no, um, I might as well talk about it. Well, I want to hear David's. Oh, perhaps appropriately, um, this is going to be a very undramatic confrontation because what we have here is an argument between I thought this was fantastic and I thought this was really good. Okay, um, I thought I, you were a bit more down on it. No, I liked it a lot. I just okay. The reason that I... We discussed it briefly yesterday and what I was trying to articulate then and what I still haven't articulated very clearly is that I, I feel like there's something inside it that's at odds with itself. There's something about it that made me think, yeah, but this doesn't quite work. It, it, it feels stylized to me in a way that I think what it comes down to is this is a film about a guy writing poems and the structure of the film is highly patterned, mm. actually very artificial and stylized in a way that the poetry is not. And it feels like a, some kind of aesthetic statement is being made which is simultaneously being undercut and not in a good way. But as soon as I say that, it sounds like I'm putting forward some kind of massive, this film is dishonest thesis and I'm not, it's just a niggle, but it's the reason why I watched it. And in fact, another countervailing narrative, I watched this in the middle of the film festival and I found it a really nice still space in the middle of lots of I wouldn't say noise, but lots of much louder films. <coughs> right. so, so that worked well for me. It is also possible that I didn't take it in as fully as I might have if I'd come to it later. I, yeah, who knows? Um, but I liked it. I liked it a lot. And I, and I 
loathed, I would say loathed is actually the right word, I'm only lovers left alive. Wow, um, okay. I liked um, Limits of Control a bunch, and I've only seen two or three other Jamush films, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I'm perfectly happy with this being on your list, and I don't want to talk it down too much, because okay. I mean, there, are, there are films that I would go after with a pickaxe, and this is just not one of them. I'm, yeah. I want more people to see this, not fewer. Mm. And it just came out December 22nd uh, here in New Zealand, yeah. so yesterday. Oh, did it open so, yesterday? Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. so that, and um, we haven't found a way to talk about Owl. Make, make this but, a um, summer film. Yeah, this, yeah. this is yeah. actually like a really lovely, yeah. like you're on Christmas holiday, take an hour and a half. End of 2016, which has been a rough year, this would be a great <laughs> yeah. way to go out on a there, nice note. Two yes. other things that I would say are what Doug was saying about watching this after November the 8th. This is an American working class film in a mm. big way. It's set in a mm. working class New Jersey suburb and there are other places in the US that do working class suburbs, but I I personally believe that New Jersey invented them. And kind of white, <laughs> white working class, you know, white working class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, no, it's a mix of... Well, it's a mix, it's a mix, it's a mix of... Yeah, mix the of bar is, like, yeah, largely yeah, African American. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And his boss is an Indian guy. And, yeah. But when when you say white working class, I mean, it, it's a it's a Bruce Springsteen kind of place. Yeah, yeah. It just has that feel. Feel, yeah. Um, and to be in that place and have it be calm, and easy and guys going around to the bar at the end of the day for a drink and just talking about their lives. No one's angry, no one's talking politics. Well actually there is something. Except for the angry. boyfriend. But, yeah. <laughs> but he's a, a bit over dramatic. Yeah, yeah. Um, the absence of Trump and Trumpism is yeah. palpable in yeah. a way that really would mean a lot to me yeah. now, I think, and uh, that yeah. didn't register obviously mm. when I saw it. The other thing is that I've been to Patterson. I used to live oh, in New wow. Jersey okay. and it's not nearly as beautiful a place as the camera work in this film manages to make it look. Yeah. But it's a very prosaic, everyday kind of beauty, which yeah. is exactly right. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's really well shot, and I really liked that. The other thing that I just wanted to mention quickly is the editing, which actually, the, I, I'm forgetting mm. the name of the editor, but my number two film had the same editor, strangely. And there's while he's doing these poetry, there's these incredible triple level lap yeah. dissolves yeah. And, and superimpositions that are just gorgeous and just take you into a very poetic space while and so and, and yet don't feel like that they're cheating you of the quotidian reality of his life at the same time um, as an aside did you know the two anarchist kids on the bus are the kids from Moonrise Kingdom Oh, no! no. Oh, I, know. Oh. I, I recognize the, the boy, but I didn't. Ah, yeah, like, that's fantastic. That is, that is cool. So that's something to uh, bring Damn. in. Um, <laughs> do you want to? Uh, shall we get your view on it when we get further along? Or yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'll yeah. talk about later. Yeah. Um, do you want to go into yours then? Okay. Yeah. So my number three film was a documentary, um, or of sorts. Yeah. Um, Kate plays Christine, which is Robert Greene's look at the life of or the death, life death of um, uh, Florida broadcaster in the 1970s, Christine Tappet. Um, yeah, uh, which notably came out at Sundance, um, sort of back to back with um, Antonio Campus's um, drama about the same person event, which I. It's called, called Christine. It's called Christine. And still has a distribution in and New Zealand. Gone, yeah. And I, I hear really interesting back and forth about those two films and how they relate to each other from a lot of critics that I follow overseas, many of whom 
dislike Kate plays Christine, um, and I loved it. Um, I just found it a really interesting way to dissect truth, really. Um, there's an event that is this kind of graphic event that, um, that, although it was little known as a premise, it's the kind of thing that you go, oh yeah, someone commits suicide on live television, that's a grisly kind of portrait, and, and maybe a standard documentary would, would take its time to kind of tease out what happened this happened. Robert Green, when he opens, he basically opens with... Um, the description of the event and what happened um, in a very kind of nondescript way where he's got uh, a picture of um, Caitlin Shale, uh, indie kind of New York actress who um, who was um, Robert Green had, they both worked at um, uh, Kim's video in, in New York, um, which is a, in fact a lot of the people on the, on the crew worked as well. Um, uh, she's kind of yeah, posited as um, readying herself for the role of playing Chubbuck in the documentary and this is filming her process of getting to grips with the character um, except that I'm pretty sure this film that she's um, prepping for doesn't actually exist so they're looking at the character through the lens of like you're instantly put in the frame of we're learning about this person Christine Chubbuck but we're also learning about Caitlin Shale and how she prepares for a role that's quite difficult um, and sensationalist in some ways um, and she's also sort of very inappropriate for because yeah. with her um, yeah. skin colouring yeah, and other yeah, things. things. Yeah. And so there's this whole idea of identity and truth that is being looked at and how, how do we... You don't even know who you're, who the documentary is actually looking into. Um, and so he kind of confuses the situation by saying, OK, this is we're looking at Christine Chubb, but we're kind of not. We're kind of looking at Caitlin Shale and how she comes to grips with the character. But then that character doesn't actually exist. Um and there's, um, he's, he's looking at how we, how him as a filmmaker and how we as an audience have this whole kind of voyeurism about things and they, and they broke that directly with people that knew Christine Chubbuck who were like, well, we don't know if we should talk to you about this but actually having a look at what you're doing, here's some footage that, you know, that you might want to look at. Um, and, they, and they go, they, they completely broach but aren't you just being voyeurs and looking to sensationalise an event? And, and so that whole kind of idea of how do we look at historical events and things um, and what are we really interested in? Are we interested in discovering truth or are we just interested in going, oh, you know, this is a grisly sort of thing that, I, that kind of titillates me to hear about it. Um, and in his interviews, Robert Greene has been really kind of quite outspoken about kind of saying, I'm interested in people saying they found it distasteful because to me it is distasteful as well but I'm interested in how we look into things and how we portray mm. history and truth and how we build up a picture of something that happened and sort of put that out. He's, he's been a lot involved in what is documentary as a form and how, how much is it truth-telling and what is truth and how much can we actually show it. Um, yeah. It's it's actually uh, would have, is my number six film of the year, and um, I've said before that uh, it and my number one film of the year that we'll get to. Mm. Um, I think if I taught a class on documentary, yeah. either production or viewing would be required viewing because yeah. I feel like it's a film that's as much about how we view documentary mm. as it is about documenting the event itself, yeah. if not more so. Mm. And so that's. Um, 
And it, it is something, um, particularly the last scene, I saw somebody recently on Twitter compare it to funny games. Um, yeah. That kind of act of audience provocation yeah. of like, why are you watching yeah. this? And and it does um, then sort of feed back into other films that, are, um, for lack of a more tasteful term, we can call tragedy porn. Mm. Um, and yeah. says, yeah, what is, what is it about it that makes you want this and, mm. and that's um, and I think those are really um, difficult questions and I think they should be treated as difficult questions yeah. and I think that's one of the strengths of the film is that it doesn't give a pat answer yeah. to those questions no, and, and that's I think something what, that's really important in this time and place. I think one of the things that he digs into on that line is that he's basically saying things like this happen and we want to find meaning and understanding even, even like if there's no meaning in like this meant something but why we want to know the why and he's basically saying we can't understand somebody's motivations we can observe and comment but we can't say this is why someone did something and, yeah. and that's admirable really this is clearly puts it out there with documentaries yeah um, and which was great the other thing that I I, I don't know I, f- I feel like my description of it is making it sound like a like a dry a somewhat dry intellectual kind of masturbatory oh this is about truth and uh, how we th- but it's actually not so much it's, masturbatory it's, it's, as self-flagellation yeah but, but, <laughs> it's just, but it actually, I found it really a really interesting gripping watch to see yeah. um, how Caitlin Shale kind of did her performative element and then how you kind of disappeared into I'm not quite sure how much of this is performance how much is this is her actually kind of trying to herself come to grips with right. the ideas that Green is trying to get at um, and that was really a really interesting thing to kind of go this is a great performance but at the same time how much of it is performance how much of it is not performance does she know <laughs> yeah does she know when she's being filmed yeah. I, I want to take a moment to talk about fun because I feel mm. like there is this uh, traditional notion of movies that are fun and movies that are not fun. Mm. And movies that are fun have lots of explosions and stuff going on. And movies that aren't fun, you have to think. <laughs> I found, and Robert Green might be horrified to hear me say this, not that I'll ever listen, mm-hmm. but I found Kate Plays Christine to be a lot of fun in how it stimulated me intellectually. Mm. And I found... Um, well, I'll just bring up Rogue One as a movie that um, isn't coming up otherwise that I found to be very not fun. That apparently other people are finding oh, I, fun. Th- th- Rogue One is my number two. <laughs> <laughs> Spoiler alert. Um, yeah, I, I think that our Assassin's Creed again. You know, it's just like that. There are many, so many movies right now that, uh, particularly mainstream popular ones, that have managed to create this consistent delivery of spectacle and noise and people yelling at each other it's something that sounds like a plot point or maybe even an emotional plot point and yet there's been no character development to get them to there mm. that that create an overall sense of incident that make you think you're watching something but they're the empty calories yeah. of something and I, I think that watching movies like Kate Plays Christine mm. and um, these other things are actually quite fun mm. um, to think about you know, to get you chewing on these issues. It's, it's yeah. not dry. I mean, no, I watched... No, it's not dry um, at all. Yeah, I watched, right. I should, I, yeah. I, sorry, I, I'm going to leap in. Just in case you thought when I substituted self-flagellating for masturbatory that I was 
delivering my own opinion of the film. Um, I just thought it was the word that Jacob was reaching for. It doesn't sound like it's that film at all. That is yeah. the reason why I avoided it, though. I would go to an explosions film with a much lesser sense of risk. Like, what yes. I'm risking is that I'll walk out after, as you say, two hours of empty calories, sometimes with a sense yeah. of profound disgust. I mean, there are, Michael Bay can achieve that, yeah. but it would take him three hours. But there are... Sure. The downside of going to a film like Kate Plays Christine, and this is why I didn't, yeah. is precisely that I'm going to walk out feeling like I've been beating myself with bamboo thongs for well, the last two hours. And this is how I felt about, say, um, No Home Movie. Did you see No Home Movie? I did, and my God, that was the driest, hardest film that I actually enjoyed at of anything that I watched yeah. this year, I think. That is I, not an easy film. I I actually wound up taking a break halfway through with the person I was viewing with. Oh, it, you, and you we got a bastard. coffee. We couldn't do that. And talked about it. And then I came back to the second film, and where I had found it just, as you say, this sort of self-flagellating experience, suddenly I was completely inveigled in it and saw what was going on and the patterns. But you'll never know whether that would have happened anyway. Uh, that's true. I wouldn't. Um, I, I, well, no, I do think that to some extent... By virtue, and quit very quickly, no home movie is a film by Chantal Ackerman. Um, the last film. The last film yeah. because yeah. she's committed suicide, suicide. shortly Speaking after its release. Yeah. And uh, it uh, depicts the decline of her mother, which I didn't actually know exactly at the outset. And so you have rather lengthy shots of her mother doing nothing in the house, which are complete, feel almost completely meaningless and gratuitous until she's incapable of puttering around yeah. Yeah. and and you have long discursive discussions about her family history which again are a bit as about as exciting as picking any random person off the street and asking them to tell you about their mother's history and until she's incapable of talking about it again mm. and so no, I could go on at some length about that film because I'm it just transfixed me in so many ways. It was a yeah. very hard watch, but so many things about it were a jigsaw puzzle. Like, mm -hmm. it took me about half the film to figure out that certain exterior scenes that we'd seen very early on um, were set immediately behind the apartment. You get a glancing view yes, down yes. into this lawn that you'd previously seen from outside. And it was like, oh my god, it makes sense! Yeah. Now I know who we are! <laughs> and, and, and that film, I think, is fair to describe as a film that's a lot of work and that's not in any meaningful sense fun work. Yeah. Mm. But yeah. that, is, that is quite rewarding. So, mm. uh, but I feel like there's this kind of sharp divide between fun films and films that you use your brain, and I think it's much more of a Venn diagram. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Rather than a... Um, yeah. Berlin Wall down yeah. the middle, or <laughs> Mexican border wall. Yeah. <laughs> well, did you want to say anything more about Kate plays Christine, Jacob? No, no, I'm, I'm having a... Yeah, we've talked about it yeah, before yeah. as well. Yeah. That's quite a nice bridging remark. Yeah, yeah. Um, because my film, I think, really pushes the boundary of fun for a lot of people, and and did for me too in some ways. Um, what went we out into this wilderness to find? <laughs> my my number three film is The Witch. Um, Don't you mean the the witch? <laughs> <laughs> no, that wasn't the accent at all. No, no, I meant this on-screen title is two Vs. Oh, right, right, right. W. I hadn't taken that, and now I feel. No, it was an entirely different accent. But let I, I won't uh, go ahead. Um, the Witch is a horror film. It's yeah. also a period film. It's set in Puritan America 
very early on, so it's... it's 1700s, I believe. I think so. So it's some outcasts from New England who've lit out for the backcountry, which is mm-hmm. not, not very far off at that point. The frontier is like three miles away from the mm-hmm. coast or some such. Yeah. Um, and they go out into the wilderness and they homestead. And it's, so it's a story of this one family stuck in their clearing, surrounded by forest, and is there something out there? Um, and very, very ominous. It's a horror film, uh, but not in the now we're going to make you jump way for the most part. Mostly I would describe it as a film of mounting dread. I spent its length getting more and more worried (laughs) (laughs) Um, and wondering what was going to happen to whom and who was going to be doing it. And there are some astonishing ambiguities that it achieves, which it then kind of sacrifices in its last five minutes for a very problematic ending not problematic necessarily in the negative sense. It's a, it's a problem that you have to solve. Um, I ended up deciding that I could live with the ending quite happily, but it did it did take me some effort. Um, one of the big things about the film is its period dialogue and its period accents. I did find it about thirty percent indecipherable. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of Americans, which is really interesting because I've also, I mean, yeah. you'll, you'll have come That's across you'll have come across the idea that Shakespearean English survives today only in the American South. Um, I mean, oh, that's as, as an no, accent, I haven't heard about that. the idea is that if we could hear Shakespeare speaking, he would sound Texan. That a lot of um, I did not expect that. No. A lot of a lot of period vowels from from the 16th and 17th century only really survive in the American South now. But it was definitely American American critics and American podcasters who I heard saying they were really struggling with this film. Which, as a New Zealander, and I guess also as someone who's done a lot of Renaissance period reading, okay. I. I just reveled in it. It was so nice to hear this language used as if naturalistically. And I guess the accents you would say were English Northern. They were kind of Yorkshire accents, very, very heavy, Um, particularly the fathers um, who had just such a gorgeous voice, the guy playing the father. Um, So I was just, I was enjoying it as, as a language experience. It's also a very strong musical experience. The score is really, really imposing in a way that could drive you crazy. Mm. Um, and visually, I found it beautiful. In what kind of style? In a kind of a dark in, uh, Now we will have screeching threnody of horror type. Lots of early 20th century classical, the Gaddy and those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, very atonal and, yeah. Mm. The, the two elements that really stuck with me, interestingly, apart from an exorcism scene, which will be one of my scenes oh my here, God. but yeah. uh, not in this count but overall um the production design and the, uh, the director whose name i'm blanking on right now um was uh, uh, I think robert was, eggers robert eggers that's right was a for, was a production designer and and you get the sense i mean they're living in a cabin in um the outskirts of massachusetts yeah. wherever they've been exiled to and everything is supposed to be hand-built in the period and you get the sense that all of these structures and everything was hand-built that there's not like somebody's put up some mm. you know yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. A, a prefab you know wall and the banks and I heard you know, an interview with him I think on the slash film cast one of the big stumbling blocks with getting the film made at all was that he insisted on doing everything by hand, by hand mm. period fashion um, and that cost an awful lot more so getting yeah. the money together took much longer um, but 
it really does show on the screen. It does, yeah. The other, the other element that really stood out for me was um, young Anya Taylor-Joy, who is the lead actress. Who, oh, she's so good. Uh, yeah, who will reappear in 2017 on our screens in Split. Split. Yeah. Um, so, you know, M. Night Shyamalan stole that and the cinematographer from It Follows. So, yeah. you know, he's got good taste in uh, horror films. And, um, yeah, she takes what's a very difficult role and uh, I mean I feel like we've seen the father's role before yeah. and we've seen this mother's role before and there's something specific about her role that feels a bit more unique and I don't know if that's actually characterization or if it's just how she chooses to perform but it's transfixing whenever she's on screen trying to work out it you know I mean there are these levels of ambiguity that you're playing within dread as it goes on and trying to work out where she is is um, a really transfixing element of the movie yeah. and I didn't love it as much as you did but I it's also a film that I suspect on a second viewing I might put a lot of um, particularly if I turn subtitles on a lot of my uh, concerns aside and really roll with it a bit more yeah a second a second viewing would either make it one of my absolute favorite films or kill it for me, and I can't actually predict which. Are you a um, horror person generally? Not generally. I'm, I, I not in a. I haven't watched nearly as much as a true horror person would have. It sounds I, fascinating. I, I do enjoy being scared. Some people um, reflexively don't like horror, which is why I'm asking. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not a big horror fan, and so I like at, when it played um, all of events. Um, I had a bunch of, and that was kind of last on my list, and then it dropped off, and I was right, kind of right, right. partially relieved. Um, is it really scary? Um, it's. No, um, it's really frightening. Does that does that distinction make sense to you? If, if you, if you <laughs> well, okay, 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 okay. Let, let, let me describe my my relationship with horror slide just very quickly. Eighties, nineties, lots of jump scares and gore. Don't bother me at all. Seventies, slow building dread and kind of creepy, not quite a showing. It freaks that. the crap out of me. It's that. Yeah. It's seventies. So I will sit there and get sore shoulders. Yeah, I'll be like, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a really we'll tense that. film. And that's, mean, it, that's what I want. I, do, what, yeah. I, I guess what draws me in horror is the things that are really scary, not the things that. If a horror film just wants to disgust me and make me feel tense, I mean, it's pretty easy to do. Yeah. And I, there's, maybe it's just that there's no degree of difficulty, but I don't really respect it. If a film can. Well, make I, don't, me, I, don't, I just don't get scared from that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. No, me neither. The, but I respond. I mean, the kind of, I the do. freaky supernatural unexplained kind of slowly not quite oh. show you everything and they just kind of have this that is vague kind of oh, what's happening yeah, yeah. Sort of, you know. that's actually a good segue to your number two so I'll probably end up oh. watching this by myself at uh, 2am oh, that'll... <laughs> <laughs> which is yeah. what I did with House of the Devil yeah. <laughs> I really shouldn't have <laughs> yeah. um, on, the, on the list of films not to watch with your children I would put this at the very top I agree. it's not because it's explicit but like wild are we getting to wild yeah, no, wild, no, no. <laughs> wild and the lure the two, thing, two films my daughters were most interested in were at film festival you what was the second one the law. Oh, right. Oh, the the and the one with the wolf. <laughs> Can we watch those? No. <laughs> Do you want Sif showing up? <laughs> oh, dear. But yeah, let's actually segue into your number two. Because that's number two? Um, another uh, genre piece in yeah. a sense, and other ways, totally not. Um, my number two is Personal Shopper. 
which is the second film um, in two years to be released by Olivier Assayas, am I saying that correctly, uh, with um, Kristen Stewart playing, in this case, the lead yeah, in, yeah. His, in Clouds of Sils Maria. She was one of the two leads. Uh, I feel as though to describe this film at, at all is to spoil it somewhat, but I'm going to go ahead and do that. So it's a ghost story. Um, it's. I think the first scene makes that pretty clear. Actually, the first scene makes yeah, that yeah, very they, clear. They, but they don't, it's not a spoiler, really. It's. Uh, well, it's it's interesting seeing it if you don't know that. Mm. I didn't quite. Know, I didn't know the extent to which it was going to be, and I just I loved it. So it's it's a it's explicitly a genre piece, uh, but it's much much more a character piece, I guess. Mm. But without yes. ever ceasing to be a genre piece, so it's a very sophisticated piece of storytelling. Part of what's going on with it is your constantly playing this game trying to figure out um, what kind of film you're watching and where it might go mm. but at the same time it's just it's, it's one of those films where the lead actor is always in shot so it's Kristen Stewart's yeah. film completely and she is that thing of trying to figure out where a film might go she's perfect for that I think if there's one thing that she she's can kind of a human cooler shot she can't not do ambiguity yeah um or I remember when she played Snow White in Snow White and the Huntsman, thinking, yeah, you're good, but you're totally wrong for fairy tale princess. Right. Um, because you always look like, um, you, you're so 20th century, so 21st century. Mm, so yeah. Snow White has to be this very pure character. And, and I think the opposite of purity in cinematic terms is actually ambiguity. Mm. Um, it's, you feel like it's corruption, but corruption is all one thing. Purity is all one thing. Ambiguity is yes. lots of things going on at once. Yeah. So yeah. for a film that's got a lot going on, she's ideal. Mm. Uh, and I still don't quite know what happened at the end of this film. Mm. Um, I still enjoy thinking about it. Um, I think I feel like I know exactly what went on, but I don't want to discuss it at all. But it, it's in my top ten. It was very satisfactory. I know we yeah. have discussed it before, and yeah, I belabor the have. point. But um, did you see it? Did yeah, yeah. And where, how did it sit for you? I can't recall. Not as high, perhaps. Um, probably not quite as high, but I did really enjoy it. It made it into my, um, I think it made it into my top fifteen. Right, right, right. It's Possibly um, top ten. It's, it's not a horror film. It's not. No, it's no, not, not even a scary film. No. but it's a suspenseful here and there. Yeah. I, I, do you think it's not a scary film? Because I was pretty tense at the end of that. Um, and also in the middle of it too, with the um, texting the on the train. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, I, I, think okay. there, I think there's a number of um, I, I, yeah, scenes I, that are yeah. quite tense. Yeah, end, I, I understand was, what you're saying. The end, because the end, it gets a lot more ambiguous. I was, where you thought you had some things keyed in, and then suddenly you're like, "Is that quite what yeah. I thought it was?" Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Which yeah. I liked a lot. Yeah, I was more avidly interested than than frightened, even when I should have been frightened for her. Um, I mean, one of the one of the things that a ghost story kind of takes off the table is the idea that being killed is the worst thing that can happen to you. So I was more interested in mm. anything else. Have you seen the Lighthead of Hell House? No. It's a nineteen seventy three film that's about communication with the paranormal, and I, th- I just from some other things that you've talked about, I think you'd really like it. It's I think based on a Richard Matheson. No, I've got it wrong. Well, I can't remember. It's based it's based okay, on a short story either by Richard Matheson or another writer of similar ilk and it's uh, very much about um, a group of um, people going into a haunted house to communicate with the spirits with very technical equipment and they're going to handle this all very scientifically and it's going to be a very mannered tranquil endeavor and things 
decidedly do not go to plan. Mm. And so I think that fits with a lot of the mm. things that that appeal to you in horror very well. Yeah. Yeah. So. Interesting. Just how did you like? Where would you rate Personal Shopper compared with um, Clouds of Silsmarie? I mean, they're very different films, but where do they sit for you? I think Clouds of Sils Maria may be a better film and I enjoyed it slightly less. I love them both. Mm. Um, I need, I want to rewatch them both and get a handle around that. Oh, yeah. More of my, my fascination, the things I enjoyed with Clouds of Sils Maria I think are probably more um, repeatable. Mm. I'm not sure how well Personal Shopper would rewatch that's, that's no strike against it some films are designed to be fun ones mm, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not even I'm not sure that it was one of those actually I think mm. watching it a second time could be fascinating I think it'd be really interesting yeah, yeah I think it'd be interesting mm. I, one thing I, that I saw a few people comment that they thought Kristen Stewart performance was um, was terrible and I just I didn't get that at all I was like what the hell are you on did they was, did they provide footnotes to that at all I don't, I get maybe, really it was, maybe it was just a knee-jerk reaction to See, I when, don't like Kristen Stewart because I think a lot of people life. just don't like Kristen Stewart yeah. I think that's a different thing when people stand up and say X is bad I'm, that and X is something that I love um, that's the start of a really good conversation yeah. but mm-hmm. as an assertion it just frustrates me it's mm-hmm. like well okay it's bad could you say why yeah. like what is she doing that doesn't work for you Talk a little bit about how you experience yeah. this, so I can get a sense of whether you and I could even have an interesting conversation. Yeah. Um, I. It is particularly difficult with someone like her who's been in the public eye for so long. Yeah. Um, certainly, I did that thing of. I mean, I actually. Cough saw all of the Twilight films and liked her in them, <laughs> but I still, particularly when she went on, to make what I. I think was a bit of a career misstep with Snow White and the Huntsman. That was yeah, like yeah. she was never going to be blockbuster girl. Yeah. Um, interesting films, indie films. Um, Have you seen the Runaways? Were there? No, no, I didn't go to that. I looked at that and thought again, classical music boy. I looked at that and yeah, thought, yeah. kind of not my jam. But mm. um, actually, I'm increasingly inclined to just go down her filmography yeah, and watch yeah. everything at this point. Um, anyway, I can. I s- caught her before all of the hoopla. I caught her in Adventureland. I really liked her. Oh, she's great in that. And yeah. also, I mean, I I didn't know who she was at the time, but I yeah. remember liking Panic Room. Um, oh yeah, yeah. See, I didn't yes. realize she was yeah. in Panic Room. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you were a big certain woman fan as well. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. And I, I haven't. I missed it unfortunately. That's when I had big. She doesn't. In 2016. We she haven't... doesn't have much to do in Certain Woman, but she's... right. We'll talk about that film a bit. I have a feeling we might be moving towards Certain Woman. In fact, is it anyone's number two? I don't think we've, we've, we've got it, we haven't got it on the list, but I want to bring it in there just quickly because Certain Woman was a fantastic film. Well, it, it's a film that underwhelmed a bunch of people who are possibly Kelly Reichert fans. I'm a big Kelly Reichert fan. I was in the in the screening. I, I really enjoyed it, but um, it's grown in my mind as I have reflected upon it, and it really irked me at the time when people said, "Ah." Oh, the last segment of this film is fantastic, which it, which it is. It's, it's a film with three segments, and the last yeah. segment is fantastic. But everyone said, ah, oh, last segment was fantastic. Other ones were all right. The second one was pretty, was pretty dull. And I, I was really 
a bit myth that everyone was down on the second Jacob segment. Jacob is describing me. Um, is that Michelle Williams? Michelle Williams, I Williams which is basically yeah. her negotiating um, to get um, some stone off Renee Clayton from Benson. Mm. Um, and uh, <laughs> is Benson a um, touchstone for anyone? <laughs> it's in my head, I don't know. But, yeah, just give me my okay. vintage away. Um, and I actually think that was a really beautiful quiet dissection of relationship disintegration yeah um i haven't seen it but i'm like married to you but you you obviously weren't as big a fan oh i now i feel that saying i but the third part was great it opened with one of my favorite shots of this year's film mm. festival um yeah the train actually none none of its parts bored me i don't think i'm looking over my shoulder to the person who saw it with me who was in the room to see if he disagrees because he often remembers these things more clearly than I do. Did he um, hate it? Did I? Did I hate certain woman? Certain woman? Did I hate any part of it? I think he quite liked all the parts. He says that he thinks I quite liked all the parts, which is good because that's my memory. Yeah. Um, but I. It's I'm, good that you have randomly detached rounds <laughs> sitting next to you for uh, additional storage. He has so much power to mislead. <laughs> he, he does not abuse it. Um, but I, what I failed to do with the film was assemble it into a coherent whole. Oh, that was okay. my problem, yeah. and I think you've managed to do that much better than I have. And mm. I now think I should watch it again. Do you feel like it's a coherent whole, or do you feel like it just because it is? Um, yeah, I do. Uh, I do. I've read I've read Mel Malloy's book that I it's based book, on, yeah. and it's a beautiful collection. Of stories Do they and string um, together or they don't string together narratively and not even necessarily thematically. But her voice. But as a viewpoint and a voice, yeah. mm. I feel like they're of a sensibility. Yeah. Mm. That's and, what I would say. Well, there's a sensibility, yeah, yeah. and with the change up of, yeah. of um, gender in, in one of the stories. Yeah, which I, I'm fascinated to see how that plays out. Well, well, partially, I think that's. Um, Kelly Reichert's interest in, and, and way of joining it is it's the stories of women yeah. um, in various circumstances and and looking at looking at a, a female point of view of having to deal in certain situations so um, one is um, being painted as the bad person uh, like the the person who the, like the, the spouse who has to make a bad who who is seen to be making the the harsh calls which other people don't like and they're being painted as the bad person um, and is frustrated with that um, the 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 first one with um with uh, name pops out of my head Laura Dern Laura Dern thank you yep. yeah um, as a lawyer and who explicitly sort of talks about if I was a guy I wouldn't have to explain yeah. this it would just be accepted um, and basically says this is really frustrating um, and then in, in the last one we, we've, we've got um, a story of uh, primarily about a couple of women who are, who are um, in one who's in uh, in a sort of a work situation which you wouldn't necessarily or two in work situations actually you wouldn't necessarily naturally um, in a kind of a um, patriarchal society associated with women so right. the law and righteous um, so yeah. so it's really and it's the gender flip is really interesting mm. there actually because can, so you've can, read the original we, stories as well yeah okay. can, can we describe it a little it's, sure I mean it's basically it's a situation where in the in the story um, um, a man puts a woman on a pedestal yeah um, she doesn't want to be there she's not that interested she's, she's a she's, teacher he's 
a student. Uh, he kind he's of, not even a student. He, he, he just he, turns up. He oh, just, that's right. Yeah, bored in a small town. Stumbles into a night class, actually, kind of by chance. And one of the interesting things about the film, and I seem to remember the book also, is that it's presented as one of those random things people yeah. do, and it just it works. And, and, and the person is works pure, on a ranch and is lonely. Basically. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 in the film, yeah, um, the the ranch girl is really into the young. Um, lawyer who's teaching yeah, this law teaching class. Yeah. Um, it's there's some ambiguity as yeah. to how to what extent it's reciprocated, and that's really the whole story. But if yeah. it's if it's a man who really is kind of is manufacturing this woman's interest in his own mind, it's a story we've seen a bazillion times. Yeah. Um, now, uh, a, a friend of ours did comment to me when the I'm going to spoil this whole thing. Does anybody mind? Um, the Turn your ears off if you don't want to hear about yeah. certain women. So the, uh, Fast forward a minute. Love story ends badly. Um, or not, not even ends Doesn't even badly. get started. Yeah, she's not interested. Um, and doesn't probably, isn't even aware. Yeah, it's, it's an, it basically, it's for the young ranch hand, it's, it's about experiencing someone's almost complete indifference. Yeah. Um, benign indifference. Mm. Got nothing against you, but don't actually quite realise that you exist in the world. Yeah. Um, and... For a woman to get that from a woman is kind of more interesting because rarer. Mm, yeah. Although, also, um, a friend of ours did comment to me afterwards that she had seen, I'm going to make up the number, but it might well have been 27 lesbian love stories that ended sadly yeah. in the last mm. year, and the number of happy ones was zero. So that frustrated her a bit. That might be a good time like Mara. To me, well, no, that might be a good time for me to transition to my number two, because obviously she missed um, my second best film of the year, my best dramatic film of the year, and it's being left off a lot of lists because technically it was last year in the States. Yeah, but but motherfucking Carol. Um, Todd Haynes and is always been a director that mm. I've admired, even when his film's just like, I'm not on your wavelength, but you do you, that's great. Um, you know, Far From Heaven I found far too mannered, um, Poison I found far too kind of immersed in very specific, like, issues of its milieu to connect to me, but Safe I loved, mm. um, but Carol... I'm not there. Uh, sorry? I'm, I'm not there. I'm not there, I just thought it was kind of a mess, but at the same time... Oh, I you totally love that film. I just, I, it just felt quite... I, I'd love to revisit it, maybe one that I totally missed, hmm. the, um thing of it. I remember coming out a time where there was like, it was in the sort of Academy uh, Awards release series where it's like suddenly we're going to drop 12 films on New Zealand all in a row and you go see all the good films of the year that aren't at the film festival and yep. then you feast on scraps for the rest of the year. Um, so yeah, I guess I suppose I accidentally spoiled the end of Carol there, but um, Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara uh, center what at the same time is a 50s melodrama yeah. that's very steeped in traditional Hollywood grammar. And in fact, the more you know, the more you're expecting it's actually a gloss on Brief Encounter. It uses yeah. a very similar uh, structure to Brief Encounter and the way it uses it eventually very productively to pull the rug yeah, out from under you yeah. is fascinating. And the specificity of the performances at, in it, the, um, the ability to take what's a very 
constructed feeling format of the melodrama and infuse it with what feels like very genuine mm. emotion and it, and even just the way that Todd Haynes uses shots of hands in this film for me was more richer than many other films in their entire running time that I saw this year <laughs> and I felt like and I've still only seen it once. I'd love to revisit it. And it is also a Christmas film as well. So, oh, yes. Um, I should have... Um, but don't call it a Christmas carol, because that would be really inappropriate. <laughs> but um, I, I feel like it's a film that um, somebody who, like, Todd Haynes is such a passionate student of film and, you know, studied semiotics at Brown and has sometimes let, I think, his intellectual side overwhelm his storytelling side in some of his films and to find that balance here which I, as um, I think some people found in Far From Heaven which didn't work as well for me uh, and just nailed it it's my drama of the year no question and, um, uh, and flawless as far as I'm concerned excellent mm. I don't know what you guys thought about I, it I, I loved that. it as well um, with those um, kind of Oscar releases from last year and various other films. There was a yeah. few films that I really wanted to see. Um, Carol was one of them. Brooklyn, a couple others, and most of them underwhelmed. But Carol was yeah. Brooklyn's not a patch. Um, yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. And, and, it, and in terms of being um, New York in the '50s, '60s, um, I had a friend who was like, oh, "I want to watch these two films." I'm like, "Watch Brooklyn first because." you'll feel really sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But particularly in the, in, in the cinematography between those two films... Oh, my gosh. Ed Lachlan in a 16mm camera. Oh, my God. Like, um, Brooklyn makes New York in the 50s or whatever it is, 60s, seem kind of, okay, a little bit drab. It just wasn't shot very well, I thought. Um, Carol was beautiful to look at. It was Lush. insane. Yeah. Um, mm. And the the shot framing and setups were, I mean, <sighs> deconstructing shots always seems a little intellectual and feels like oh, maybe you're abusing the film a little bit. But I, there were several shots where I just because I was watching it um, on the home video and uh, and I I just paused and went. Gosh, that's fantastic! Like uh, there was a particular scene where Rudy Mara's character goes to visit Carol's house, um, and she's in there, and they have a shot of both of them in separate rooms from position, and the camera just pivots at one point, mm-hmm. and it's so beautifully set, um, and the lighting in it is fantastic. Like there's a dark area in one part, brightly lit in another. Someone sitting. Um, at a piano, I think. Oh my gosh, so good! It cre- it creates the sense of looking yeah. that puts you in yeah. both characters' shoes so well and allows you yeah. to pivot between yeah. these very distinct um, positions of yeah. longing yeah. that you're bridging as you're watching yeah. it because you're privileged into both. And and lots positions. of shots through car windows, which are really well utilized. Yes, yes, and yeah, wow, yeah. Um, so I'm going to confess to pure personal failure here. Um, I don't watch as many films as the two of you do. Um, I think this is just a fact. And this was one of the situations where it, um, where it cost me 
I loved I'm Not There. It was not only my first Todd Haynes film, but I saw it very early on um, after I started reviewing film professionally, which means that I saw it very early on after starting watching many, many more films. And it was one of the first really intelligently constructed alternative films that I had seen for years because I came to film reviewing from a long period of being kind of out of film raising young children. So the reason this is relevant is that I tagged Todd Haynes with um, post-structuralist, strange, deeply intelligent, weird dude, um, for lack of a more descriptive single word. Um, I thought he was fantastic, still do, um, but Todd Haynes is not just the guy who made I'm Not There and if I had gone off and watched all his other films which I have still never done um, I would know that and I would have gone along to Carol expecting something different because I was expecting um, something punky and strange and I'm Not There has six different people mm. playing Bob Dylan one, of them, Kate one of them is yeah, Kate Blanchett but yeah. Kate Blanchett looks like Bob Dylan in the film another Bob Dylan is played by a young black boy um, who right, is yeah. fantastic um, so I was expecting something highly out there and Carol is a very classical film it's yeah. not merely classical not that there's anything wrong with that but it, it starts from a position of kind of performing classic film and then as you say um, doing variations on it I think it may be a great film but I watched it with a sense of oh, I wanted something else, which is mm. just one of the ways that you can really let a film down. And um, I've, I haven't gone back and rewatched it yet, and I think that it's one of those films that I would only experience properly if I saw it for the second time. So what I'm saying here, gentlemen, is that I disqualify myself um, from having an opinion on this film at all. Um, and it's kind of, it's interesting to me. That doesn't happen very often, as you yeah, know. Yeah. I'm hugely yeah. opinionated. <laughs> um, but on this one, I just think I came in with the wrong set of criteria. Yeah. If I watched Carol again and thought, this still isn't what I wanted, and I'm not in love with these characters, and I don't think this is lush and beautiful, and it's yeah. not fantastic, that would actually surprise me, but it could happen. Mm. I just don't know. One of my favorite film critics is Mike D'Angelo, and one year he went to Cannes um, without... Uh, knowing any of the films that were playing and he literally wore headphones the whole time so that he would not know any of the films that were playing so that he couldn't have any prejudice about the director of the film and, <laughs> and in many cases um, the credits don't actually list the director until the end so it was as close to a sort of yeah. pure experience of a film without knowing damn that's is this right. a Coen Brothers film is this what who is the, and, I, and at a certain level I can imagine that being quite yeah. distracting is yeah. it that you're wondering who's directed it instead of paying attention to character nuances but on the other hand as you say I can think of many films where the expectations of the director yeah. Yeah. either positively or negatively influence that, that wasn't my the perception issue here. of it I mean that, certainly that's a thing yeah. it's, it's often it's, it's fun but what I had here was partial and poorly informed expectations based on I think having, having read around a bit um, the least characteristic film Todd Haynes has ever made. Um, I took that to be kind of his middle of his road, yeah. uh, which was just a dumb thing to do. Mm. But I didn't. I didn't really think to read up. Um, I do. I 
In particular, what I remember from the film is just being blown away by Rooney Mara. Yeah, that's the other thing for me. Yes. I, I would say the same thing. Prior to this, I didn't really know a lot about Rooney Mara, and but I didn't get into the girl who blah blah blah. In which um, she is films. fantastic, and I mean, um, it's, it's not a film that I would tell yeah. you to watch. But she, I've, I've watched Dragon Tattoo, yeah, Dragon, yeah, yeah, Dragon yeah. Two, in that series. Like I've watched one of the original um, Stig Larsson mm. uh, adaptations. The Danish is it? Uh, uh, Scandinavian. One of the Scandinavian yeah. ones. I think it might be Danish. Um, and then I watched the first of the um, of the um, Fincher adaptation. Yeah. Um, and uh, only one today. Yeah. It was. It was alright. Well, that's the one she's on. Yeah. Yeah. And and I was like, oh yeah, but this was. Yeah, this was special. Like the acting of both of them, they they just connected really well. And what I like, Kate Blanchett is fantastic, and I love her. She is, yeah. Not uh, not to downplay that at all. Yeah, yeah. As an aside, like, oh. she is she is so good. And yeah. It's such a, and you kind of expect that now, to a degree. It's, it's such an overt role. Yeah. That I kind of emphasise Rooney Mara because she's easy to overlook. Or easier to overlook. And I actually really like Kyle Chandler in this one. Kyle Chandler was really underrated. Yeah. He does the. Which one is he? He's, he's the, the husband. Couple, the husband. husband. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yes. Oh, and, no, he, he is. And good. he has yeah. he has a very thankless role because from a 21st century perspective, it's the very much the oh you don't understand yeah. you know and you're yeah. the you're the person with the traditional role who doesn't understand the suffering. Who wants to repress and, your, and, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he manages, uh, I mean, he was in Wolf of Wall Street certainly before that, and so having in Zero Dark Thirty as well, and so seeing him in a few different things, you get the really the sense of facility that he has of playing roles that are wildly different, but playing them down the middle in a certain way where he's very committed to a reality of it that doesn't break the fabric of the yeah. film, yeah. but is still, um, if you watch those just those performances back to back without the surrounding films you'd be like wow this is a really yeah. diverse actor and yet and then, it blends so seamlessly yeah, into the film, yeah. film that it's it's easy to overlook and that's a nice example of how contextual information should work I think mm, being able yeah. to bring that to an actor's performance just mm. enriches your experience yeah mm. shall we move on to yeah. a bridge from number twos to number ones as I see it um, have we done everyone's yeah. number oh, twos no, no we haven't two. done Jacob's number two but what I'm saying is the bridge is uh, David's number one. Oh yes yes to, to spoil something there okay so oh. we, we can talk about this now as my number two and David's number one yeah is uh, another Romanian film um, it's Romanian isn't it yes, yes it is yeah, yeah. Christy Pugh yep um, Sierra Nevada which is a grand small-scale melodrama family melodrama and it is so so rich and I, I remember you commenting it uh, ages ago about it being in our, in our last podcast I think almost like being like having to read an essay like a, a, a lengthy essay or short you know novella watching this film because of um, the amount of dialogue that happens and we're reading subtitles there's so much text on the yeah. screen yeah but it's so rich it, it, it's a, a family a family gathering at the death of the patriarch of the family yeah. um, and they're coming together is people the plot of Mahana? say that again? is that the plot of Mahana? I do not know I'm not sure oh well and oh, yeah, I saw yeah, Mahana apparently oh Mahana no yeah. no that is not the plot oh okay my mistake Mahana is something very different oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and so um, the main character um, is the eldest son, I think. Um, yeah. And um, it's got siblings and cousins who are all there. Um, and you get the sense that he's kind of... I mean, it's a tight family, but 
you know, he's one of two doctors in the family. He's kind of like, oh, he's a little bit kind of distant from his family. He's got a wife who's very got high expectations about what she wants, and and uh, and and he feels you know, he's kind of constantly fielding requests from her about, oh, you need to do this, you need to do that, um, which he kind of just lets wash off him to a large degree. Um, and yeah, it's just this really rich, very real feeling family drama where you've got like a, a moment a, a time of grief um, where everyone comes together and and being from a Māori family I kind of under like it, it, it feels familiar to me to be in a space where all the sort of diverse wider families together and you're hashing everything out and and there's a lot of activity and there's a lot of kind of ceremonial expectations and things that need to be met um, as part of that um, but you also you're catching up with people. There's many family dramas happening. Yeah, it was so rich. And, and the camera, it's it's mostly the camera. The, oh my it's god! Let's talk about the it's camera. It's mostly set in this um, in the house of the mum and the, the dad, apartment. I think. The apartment. The yeah, mum. so apartment house. It's relative. Like it's not a small house. They're clearly yeah. middle class. But relative to the number of people in yeah, it, yeah, relative. It's very small. And the camera is right in the middle. And so the the way they use. The intensity of choreography. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, so, exactly. Yeah, and it's choreography of movement of the camera and the movement of narrative are linked, where you've got this camera stuck in this crowded space, which is relatively small, so the camera might be in part of a passageway looking into a room where you have a mob dialogue talking. Someone will walk past the camera as someone's mid-thing, and the camera will turn and just follow this person, and you're in another part of the family discussion right. so in fact you spend a lot yeah. of time in each of the rooms of this house but you spend yeah. probably the most time in the in hall, hall. Yeah. and those hall scenes were so well constructed yeah. I mean I and I, someone just passing by and and um, and the main character might be walking from one space to another and will get accosted by a cousin that they haven't seen and they'll start up a discussion and you're suddenly into another whole part of this rich tapestry that's slowly building to a interesting there picture are, yeah. there are two I think quite quite long sequences actually mm. outside the apartment in the film and the yeah. first one is before you go into the apartment but the second one comes after you've been there for god probably Half the film. 90 minutes yeah, easy yeah. um and it it simultaneously registers as a relief and a release and also and a not because, loss. because the wife's unreasonableness in this situation where they get into a bad oh parking gosh. situation and right. there are lots of angry local people where they've parked in a space that someone else has and blocked another area yeah terrible they go outside and they have a street confrontation and yeah. apart from being so it works really well dramatically because you yeah. feel like you've been given a release from this very charged and confined area yeah, yeah. and actually you're walking into the most dangerous moment in the film in terms yeah. of someone might be about to get potentially knifed or yeah. at least beaten up yeah. um, but also it works really well for giving you a sense of the culture yeah. that this family culture is a microcosm yeah, of, of or yeah. kind of exists within yeah. so it, it works in all sorts of dramatic ways um, but then when you go back into the apartment there's this there's this sense that you're in this warm space that you've come to know really really well um, but simultaneously and contradictorily um, that you, you've been locked back up with these mad people yeah. uh, so it's very it's, in other words it's very much the experience of being part of a large family yeah. <laughs> and this is the part where I have to confess that I made the egregious mistake of missing Sierra Nevada at the film festival um, there's something about Farhadi and the, um, the salesman which uh, we wouldn't otherwise be talking about but I thought was a very good film that registers in the sort of the potentiality of 
danger yeah. and catastrophe that hangs over every scene in that. And uh, I can't remember. Did you see The Salesman? Did I did. I did. And and obviously this film was superior for you. So Vastly. I, I, I don't know. And I, I love Fahadi and I enjoyed The Salesman. Um, it was partly um, partly the extent to which this film came out of left field. I saw it when I was very tired in the middle of the festival. It was very long and as I think I said last time we spoke, as I was going in, Bill Gosden warned me that it was exactly the wrong film to see while very tired, <laughs> yeah. too much text on the screen, it will take forever, you're a brave man to be doing this when you're as tired as you look, David. <laughs> um, so, so I will put my hand up and say that my expectations were not high, particularly. Right. Um, so, so partly it's that, but also it's, it's just a joy. It's a really, really well-constructed, intelligent drama. Uh, and it's, again, it's one of these long films that uses the space. So, so much happens, uh, largely because you've got this very large family, uh, each of whom, they're not one of these cast of characters where each character has a particular kind of signifying attribute, right. but they, they do each have their own kind of personal madness. There's so, a lot of 9-11 trutherism in, in it, isn't there? Oh yes, yes, that's, yes. that's true. That's the one thing I know about Sierra Nevada is that it's d dedicated to 9-11 trutherism, which somehow seems less amusing now than it did oh, a few months ago. My, yeah, well, I mean, if, if, if you want a post-truth environment, the, the moments <laughs> where, where our, kind of our primary viewpoint character, not that the film really has one, because you do jump from room to room and character to character, but the moments where the same man of science, this doctor, um, after resisting and resisting and resisting, finally allows himself to get pulled into negotiating with his idiot relatives about their complete certainty that 9-11 was faked so that America could go into Iraq and get the oil. Because obviously that's, I mean, why wouldn't you believe that? It's just the, right. logic, the logic of it is so ironclad. I mean, look at what they gained. Look at what they yeah. stood to gain. Why wouldn't they want that to happen? Oh, God. Yeah, I know, I know. Yeah. But, but that's how he feels. Um, but then he finds that having decided that, okay, okay, let's, ha let's have this conversation. Let's demolish your feeble arguments. He can't because um, they're, not operating in, um, they're not operating from the premise that there is such a thing as logic or indeed evidence. Um, there's, there's assertion. They have... This sounds really uncomfortably familiar. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I saw it pre-Trump. Um, but I, yeah, I, but I, oh did, boy. I did see it within the ambit of the, you know, Trump was already. It was post-Brexit, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. So, so that was yeah. that was uncomfortable, um, but also also instructive. We did, we're discussing 9/11 um, trutherism. Oh yes, 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 with the cousin and the yeah, yeah, yeah. All the conspiracy theory videos and yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, awkward. There. Did you have anything else to say about uh, Sierra Nevada? Um, just that. Um, there's this, there's the, the the beautiful thing that kind of hangs all the drama off is that they're waiting to eat, and everything that happens in the film is almost like a barrier to them getting to this meal. Is it like a Louis Bunuel like? Yeah, 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 like yeah, they, yeah. They can't eat until the priest. They can't eat until up. the priests arrive. They can't eat until somebody gets into the the suit of the father that represents the father figure who's passed. There's all these different things, and then someone who needs to be doing a particular part goes away and has yes. to come back, and then the inappropriate uncle turns up and means <laughs> that they can't do things until he's been dealt with, and, sent, and, and everything is stopping them from getting to the ceremonial 
set of expectations right, yeah. fulfilled before they can all eat together and and everyone's getting more and more hungry and terse and uh, it's just beautifully orchestrated actually um this is a slightly random point but a film that i probably am not going to get to mention otherwise is um is a perfect day which is another film that i saw at the you festival. mentioned that in your last yeah yeah yeah, yeah. um which is similarly blackly comic and similarly could be described as this long series of very complex obstacles to this very simple task. So the right. entire film is about a small group of aid workers trying to do something very simple um, and things keep going wrong and they don't get to do it. And so you're saying the title's ironic? Perfect day. Spoiler alert, <laughs> um, Deeply, blackly, astonishingly ironic in, in ways that... Um, are hard to, to, and hard to articulate. Hard to articulate, I've drunk enough beer that I'm now stumbling over my tongue. And the point Thank that you. I wanted to make... Thank you, Garish Project. The point that I wanted to make is that it's interesting the extent to which both of these films feel very Eastern European. Mm, right. Um, because um, one's, one's set in the Balkans, one's, one's set in Romania, yeah. and yeah. that's a commonality that I hadn't spotted before. And I love them both. Did you either of, or, or both of you see Graduation, by the way? Because that's a film no, that also was a no, Romanian film by Christian Mungu. Who did the amazing four months, three weeks, two, two days. days. Yeah. And then Beyond the Hills that I didn't like as much. I ran as, a mile from it. Right. Did you not like his other films? Or did um, you... I completely respected um, four months, three, three weeks, weeks, two, two days. days. Without in any way enjoying it, and nor should you. It's not a film that wants to be enjoyed and... Yeah, I, I looked at graduation and thought, I don't feel strong enough. Right. Mine was just programming. Right, I yeah. um, had it on my original list, and then when I had to cut down, it didn't fit the time. But also, I, I had to pick... I was picking my Romanian film, um, yeah. and I thought Sierra Nevada is my thing. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, and I really love Death of Mythical. It's, it's just been interesting because Sierra Nevada's come up in a number of end-of-year lists and graduation oh. hasn't, and they both play it. Can and Mungu's a mm. more high-profile. Uh, and Graduation, was that good, you thought? I haven't seen it, so I'm just... Oh, very, that's why I'm okay. very curious. No, it mm. seems to have been a, a art house lacuna of sorts okay, that uh, yeah. everybody seems to have skipped on for some reason, it, yeah. even though, like, um, Four Months, Three Weeks was... You know, so acclaimed, and yeah. I thought it was a fantastic film. And maybe, it's the, maybe it's one of the best final lines of a film I've ever seen. Um, but maybe it's if one of the few I actually remember. Maybe if his films are hard work. This is what we're going to do. Oh. We're never going to talk about this again. Okay? That's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe if it's, it's subtitled, so who knows what the original Iranian was? I'm not that dedicated. Maybe if his films are seen as hard work, perhaps it was a little much. Whereas Sierra Nevada was. But Aurora and Dustin Lazarescu had yeah. very hard work quality. And I haven't seen either of those, but Aurora was notoriously like, oh god, this is slow. Like, the death of Mr. Lazarescu was slow, and you could see that it was kind of morose in terms of its subject matter, in terms of the dying evening of, a person, of an old elderly gentleman. But it actually wasn't a dry experience right. for me. I, I really enjoyed just watching this kind of fly on the wall, watching just a very odd and quite awkward experience of a, of a person. Yeah, it wasn't sort of like a dry intellectualism or anything like that. So we've segued into your number one with Sierra Nevada there. Um, and we, do you want to talk a bit more about uh, your number one? Okay, yeah. So Patterson was my number one for the year. So I'll just make a couple of 
extra comments and then we can move on. Um, one of the things that um, David was talking about, uh, I think, was um, that Patterson... Oh, I can't remember the phrase you're saying, but okay. What, what I'll do is I'll, I'll relate Patterson for me. One of the, the great things about it for me was the way that it was a really kind of quiet personal drama um, and the, the poetry of it was, was beautiful. Um, but, oh, that's right. You were saying that you felt like the structure of it didn't match the kind of the free-flowing nature of the poetry. Um Something like that. Uh, well, yeah, like the, the the poetry was very not, kind of observational every day. The not style bad. was mannered and the yeah, poetry yeah, was unmannered. Yeah, yeah. Thank you guys. Okay, so I, I, I felt I, the structure of, of Patterson for me was one of the things that I really liked about it. I found it a little quieter, but it was one of the things that linked me back to Jamusha's previous work. So uh, yeah. The Limits of Control in particular, yeah. was fantastically structured. And, and I've mentioned a number of times before in our podcast that I, a structure appeals to me just inherently I don't know why but it's one of those things that I really pick up on a film when things cycle and repeat and um, and or shadow each other um, within a film um, okay. and the limits of control was like the nth degree of that where everything was the same kind of thing it, it kind of had a structure that went to a point and then went in reverse out of it again um, Patterson was very similar where it was um where everything was on was on a daily structure and started with the shot uh, overhead shot of the bed yeah. and and yep. the and the the alarm going off and and with slight differences and the first few times it was the same and then slight differences as it went along but the structure remained the same and then going to work and talking to the boss and getting the response and then the writing of the poetry the driving of the bus and observing the pe- and so there is something in the familiar pattern that really appealed to me um, and that appeals to me generally and then that it was so just beautifully observed and the slight changes in that and going and that whole idea of finding the mystery and beauty of the everyday that we each live lives that to a degree look the same from day to day we have rhythms and patterns that happen and those things aren't they're often kind of seen as negative but they actually aren't negative like they can become negative but often they're actually really nice there are rhythms and routines in my day that I really enjoy. Every morning, uh, my alarm goes off, I get up, um, my wife Melissa stays, usually stays in bed for a little bit longer, I go out, the girls, my daughters may or may not be up, and if they are, then I might just interact with them as I need to, let's start getting breakfast, whatever, before school. I go out and I make the coffee, um, and it's, we, we have a stovetop machine, so it takes a little bit of time, I have to grind beans, put it in a tray, put it, put this metal old school technology together and then put it on an element and then kind of watch it. And I'm, in the meantime, I'm also sort of doing some other things, but often I just go and I sit and I relax and look at this thing and it's a, it's a part of my day that is just beautiful for me. I, I get some space to just stand when I'm half awake and feel the heat coming from the element and slowly smell the aroma of the coffee come out of the stovetop um, and I then I watch the the kind of the beads of, of well first little bubbles of brown um, foam come out of the top and then little beads of brown come down the side and it's something that I love and enjoy and and Patterson to me encapsulated that sense of the beautiful rhythms of the everyday 
and and it was I found it peaceful I found it beautiful I found has the like the poetry and the observations really nice I found it, the idea of it being I found it like like a, a kind of a, a, a snapshot or a story well not not a snapshot but a, like a like a little little encapsulation of a, of a person's life and a, and a couple's life and of a, a place and a, and, a, and a kind of way of life so it, it was like this multi-layered exploration or, or, or unearthing of life on several levels and done really beautifully and, and that's why it's my number one it was just yeah it, it struck me in a certain way and I just came out of that film smiling and yeah, yeah and that was I saw it in the middle of festival right. so I'd seen a bunch of really good stuff and I was with Melissa and we watched it was one of the few films we watched together and we both were just silently stunned at the end of it yeah. one of the things David and I were discussing yesterday is um, I mean is is there a certain point which you reach saturation with narratives and ultimately for a lot of films narratives are the clothesline on which you yeah, hang, hang everything. the things that are actually interesting to the filmmaker yeah. you know and sometimes the narrative is the only thing and everything else is aside but We've seen a lot of these narratives over and over, mm. and what I think what's exciting for me about Patterson is that the trellis of the film is not, with the one exception, what late-breaking exception, mm. about narrative incident, but it is just this structure mm. that um, it somehow is still this rich structure on which mm. the life can hang and be satisfying without the traditional narrative beats mm. that we're expecting. And there's so many beautiful parts, like with the girl who's writing, the, the school girl who's writing yes. the poem, sits down. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and there was another, um, and then like the incident with the bus where he kind of gets, it's like outside <laughs> his normal warehouse and he's going, yeah. and he goes into panic mode and you're like, it's not that big a thing, but he's, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. he's so used to things going so sort of smoothly and it's like, oh, oh everybody, get on the bus. <laughs> Is there a big action scene that the bus breaks down? <laughs> and one of the other things I found really interesting was that um, early on they showed photos in their room and one of him in um, his marine outfit. Um, yes, yes, and, and that's then, true. And then later on it comes in to a scene that happens um, and then, and then mm, yeah, that right. I found out after the fact that because um, Adam Driver who was in it, I, I I didn't like girls as as a as a thing. Melissa got into it, but I, I watched a few episodes and thought, ah, oh, this is just a bit kind of I, I don't like a lot of these characters. Adam Driver was in that, and yeah. then he's subsequently been in a bunch of stuff that I really liked. So much stuff. Yeah. He's just, he, Inside Living Davis. He's just um, exploded. Yeah. And, Star, and Wars, Star Wars. Silence. And, oh, was, was he in Star Wars? Yeah. Oh, Silence, we yeah. won't talk about that. <laughs> and this, like, what I found out subsequent to this was that I didn't realize he was in the Marines, and so that was likely yeah. his own photo. Yeah. Um, he's got a fantastic TED Talk, actually, yeah. about his experience in the Marines and yeah. working with... Um, the military, but yeah. um, worth checking out. And so it's kind of cool that Jamush was able to sort of sew some of those things into the character. And so, yeah, yeah. Nice. Shall we segue? Um, so I've talked about my number one before, and we won't dwell on it too much, but um, I read everything I watch on Letterboxd, and I think there's been four or five films that I've rated five stars yeah, since yeah. I've watched it. Started rating on Letterboxd, on Norte, The End of History, Certified Copy, yeah. My Second View of Mad Max, Fury Road. And so this is the first year where I've actually had two five stars after a single viewing, and that's uh, Carol 
and camera person. Mm. And the reason the camera person came in first is probably quite personal and professional, um, which is that as somebody who makes a living editing television and occasionally film for a living, and mostly documentary work, um, although this year I'm working on the Mo Show, which is on 7.30 in the morning in TV3. Give it a watch. It's super fun. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, backslash uh, and uh, self-promotion. Um, it really got... A, it got me something that I hadn't really seen in a filmic form before, mm-hmm. which was an interrogation of what it means to be the person gathering this yeah. raw footage and having to negotiate the um, the issues in which mm. you see happening and B it was edited to me in such a thoughtful way mm. of creating space to think about it I um, I've been recently writing a piece on uh, rebellion cinema for uh, Panograph Punch which will happen next year and one of the filmmakers I talk about is uh, Peter Watkins who is most famous for the war game oh, yeah. and uh, Culloden but he in Punishment Park but in his later years he started making 15 and a half hour films and criticizing the monoform which is this sort of 90 minute mm. like you know traditional three seconds this shot three seconds that shot scenes of two minutes we move on mm. to the next one and so on and yeah. mm. so forth that don't give you space as a viewer to create a matrix of thought over it because they're directing your thought within it mm-hmm. and that means obviously a film that is relying on you to have a, a, a thoughtful response in a certain way um, means that it you know the, the relation to it will specifically depend on how you respond to it and if you don't find anything particularly thoughtful on it because of your personal experience or because of your mood going into it or because you had too too many beers going into it or whatever is a much more risky mm. and unprofitable endeavor, which is to say that, you know, there are many people, um, including one at this uh, table, who didn't find camera person as rich of an experience. Well, the record I had had no beers that day. Yeah, I'm not... I'm not, I'm not <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm just saying that um, it's, it's very difficult to get into talks of these, how thoughtful your response is without yeah. sounding quite arrogant. But um, I and I, I really no, think that the reason I'm, it's my film of the year is because um, I do have that experience of looking at unmediated rushes and seeing the decisions that camera people are making that aren't really relevant to the narrative that's being told. Mm-hmm. And to see so many of those experiences unfolding in real time and creating an editorial matrix in which those ideas can be discussed and ping off each other strictly in the mode of different film that's been shot while also acting as a um, journal or biography of one's experience over that time as a formal experience that I've never experienced in film before. And I thought um, that it's very special and very unique. And I think if there were 20 films like it that I'd seen before it, that perhaps it wouldn't be a number one. But um, I still think it would have been quite high because I think... Um, Kirsten Johnson has a very specific point of view and a very specific eye and her sensibility accorded with my sensibility in a lot of ways Um, but the fact that it is uh, to my knowledge a sort of groundbreaking form in addition to all these other qualities is what made it my number one yeah I'm grateful for that response I do find it I find it very useful very interesting Um, and I think it also 
leaves me room for my response, which is, I think you're right. It's, it is precisely um, an open, structured film. It leaves you room to interpret, import your own experience, find your own meaning, none of which I did. Right. Um, I had moments of really, really appreciating what she was doing with the clips of footage that she assembles in it. But bizarrely, since, I mean, one of the reasons that I loved Francophonia so much is precisely that it interrogates the usual expectations of a documentary and forces you to forge unlikely connections and think about what a documentary Mm. is, which camera person does too. But I wanted someone to hold me by the hand a little bit more give me more contextual information. Um, I wanted to be steered, and that's not what I was expecting to want going into it. I, my experience of it was far more blank. It was far more, I am watching someone's visual diary. Yeah, memoir, yeah. kind of. Yeah. But we've discussed before that you enjoy, perhaps first and foremost, narratives. I do, but not in non-fiction. In non-fiction, I am very suspicious of constructed narratives. Um, One of the things that I enjoy in fiction is precisely the fact that I'm free to bring a different set of questions to assessing someone's agenda. Um, This is, uh, I can never remember his name, who made... um, Gibney? Huh? Thank you, Gibney, Alex Gibney. Um, <laughs> you guessed that. Yeah, Jacob just managed to extract Alex Gibney from me waving my hands in the air and looking constipated. So, um, yeah, pre- precisely what I find frustrating about the entire Gibney school of documentary is, yes. is that I will now ram my agenda down your throat while pretending to be giving you something objective. Yes. Um, and camera person is at the other extreme from this. It turns out I want something maybe three degrees further from the room. Right. Can someone, like, I'm not sure, but was all of um, Kirsten Johnson? Kirsten Johnson's, yes. Um, footage from documentary? So, yes, it was all documentary footage. Yeah. Um, a good chunk of it was footage she shot for other filmmakers, yeah, from yeah. Michael Moore yeah. and Gary um, uh, and all I, of that. That's one of the things that I found quite interesting was the juxtaposition between her experience of these projects and the yeah. and the context she found herself herself in because of the uh, because of the um, projects um, with the filmmakers involved like say Michael Moore who was yeah. not someone you think of as a sort of reflective <laughs> give you some images and leave you to stew on them more of a kind of a but here's, here's an issue and I'm gonna yell about it and that's the extraordinary thing about seeing the Michael Moore footage in this context mm. is that it's just a single camera unbreaking yeah. and you watch Michael Moore make his point in this interview and you're watching this interviewee basically yeah. like Look you know suddenly realize that he's you know, potentially opening himself up yeah. to federal imprisonment yeah. <laughs> if not Guantanamo Bay style imprisonment and, um, and then you reach the point where the film is going to hit its edit point and it just continues, going, yeah. and and so that that extent of like taking what are these so often closed documentary texts mm. and just giving a sense of the life 
outside them and how these authoritative voices, when presented in an editorial context, are actually stumbling through these much more awkward connections of like, mm. well, what is our life going to be after, as a director-subject relationship after our five minutes on camera together? You know, now that you've said on camera that you're going to commit treason or, you know, <laughs> what have you, are you, go, are, are you going to be in my corner and all these sorts of things and what does that actually mean to you be above the thing that will be happening with, you know, shots of the Capitol with dramatic music unfurling. Hmm. Um, and, and that, I, I, I mean, that's what's so exciting about it to me is that it, it's not just a film that's potent in and of itself, but that actually has the ability to change the way you watch other films. Um, and that hmm. is not something that happens very frequently. Yeah. Shall we take a break and then come back for a lightning round in which we give no more than one or two minutes to some other categories of films that didn't make our top five but uh, are worth recognizing? Let's do that. Sounds good. See you in a moment. 